This is Being Modern, Being Human, a podcast about contemporary society. And my guest today is Roberto de Tasco, an acclaimed photographer, filmmaker, and environmentalist. Roberto has worked in the fashion industry, traveled a lot around the world, and photographed the beauty of nature and people. His most influential project at the intersection of art and ecology, the Wild Horses of Sable Island, has been running for nearly 30 years now. Hi, Roberto. A very warm welcome to you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I would like to start with this Wild Horses of Sable Island project. It is a truly unique documentary project that has enjoyed both critical acclaim and love of the public. The island is home to a small herd of horses that live in a barren environment. I know for you, this has been not only work and a series of photographs, but also a relationship with these animals and this place. What significance does it have for you and what connection have you established with the animals and the place over the years? I feel that we often quantify things and we have to quantify them by words because that's how we kind of share information. Nevertheless, in the context of things, I like to think that horses, just friendships can happen spontaneously. And just like friendships, they can last a very long time or they can dissipate after some time after they've been consumed in one way or another. I always like to bring our human nature into the context of the wild horses. And I do so because this wild horses, what makes them uniquely special is that they have been outside interference from humanity for some time. And therefore, as I often say, I was witnessing wilderness in its primal form, unaware and unafraid of man. And that wilderness, unaware and unafraid of man, acts very differently than, say, the lions or tigers or other animals that I've seen at large as I've traveled around the world. It's good to see on how curious they are, how engaging they are, or, so, or how indifferent they are, just like humans. And of course, over time, a friendship, a kinship of sorts has been developed. And I had no idea that it was going to last 30 years. And now it's part of my bloodstream, as I call it. It's part of my culture. It's part of my being. And because of the longevity of the project, 30 years, I had thought it was that what I have discovered and engaged into documenting is significant enough for it to be brought to a larger scale. And that was basically New York. I'm Canadian, I'm Romanian born, I was born in Bucharest, but I thought that if you're gonna bring it to a place where everybody can actually see it, bring it to Babylon, which to me in this modern age is New York City. When this city, like everybody goes in and out and with that, the coming and going, they were able to actually bring this wild horse soul. Sable Island story to a global scale. That's how it has happened, actually. So what have been the reactions of people in New York and all over the world? How do they relate to these images of these beautiful animals? Enough, before I had the actual gallery in New York City, I had different shows. I showed it on Madison Avenue at Sony Corporation. You have to remember that I come from advertising. So I had a different relationship, different relationships in various ways. And I put them in the windows of Ralph Lauren, then Lord and Taylor, then so public buildings or department stores or significant corporations, they were displaying these particular images. 
I had showed them at a national arts club, which was the first and oldest basically gathering of artists in New York City in front of Gramercy Park. They gave me their basically main salon to exhibit these horses. And I was able to show this gigantic eight foot by 12 foot, like three meters by four meters or two meters by three meters. So giant images of wild horses and a few other things. And because of that, from the UN came to that show and they invited me to show the United Nations in the headquarters. And to answer your question, the comments were actually read, written in, in form of, I have never seen anything like it. Thank you for bringing it. And the funniest comment that I've got from the hundreds of comments that were written in the journal that was on the table was, I've seen everything as I live in Soho and I had never seen anything like it. And I thought it was funny. And that would, that encouraged me to actually open up a gallery in Soho some years ago. And for this particular show to become the longest running show in the city with the same, basically single theme, which is the wild horses of Fable Island. The comments have always been encouraging, engaging, positive. And I felt that the, the people in general, they were faced with something they, they, they could not explain that it was innately theirs. And it's not because they love horses or don't love horses. They felt that the, they felt the attraction that I felt towards them. And they felt that they were brought into the gallery just by stumbling into it more than anything else. Many people did not even know why they walked into the gallery. The gallery became some sort of a magnet, so some magnet towards wilderness itself. And I think that because of that, the show was able to last for so many years. We are disconnected from nature in some way, and especially from wilderness in general. I think that's exactly that feeling that attracts people to your photographs and those animals. It's an island within New York, that big urban place, and that contrast is really taking. Yeah, just on that note, people quantify like where is Sable Island. So Sable Island is about 300 kilometers off the coast of Nova Scotia. It's a place where about 500 horses, 500 shipwrecks, and about 500 years of known history converge. The island itself, it's about twice the length of Manhattan, and it's about the width of Central Park. So that kind of quantifies it to everyone. Often I say that to people say, okay, where's Nova Scotia? And I say, well, do you know where the Titanic went down? And most people do. It doesn't matter where you live in the world. So I said, wait, Sable Island, it's 400 nautical miles from where the Titanic went down, which is basically just there. In the ocean, 400 nautical miles is just a moment away. <laughs> it's an interesting coincidence. Yeah. Can people go there? I know it's quite hard. In the early days, when I've started, pretty much only scientists, the researchers were allowed. It took me about a year and a half to get the permission to go. And I had to explain to them why I want to do that. The intention from the very beginning was very specific. I said, to me, it's not a, an, an experimental journey. It's not something that I'm going to do because I have nothing better to do. I'm a photographer. I think that I'm pretty good at what I do. I shoot fashion. I come from the advertising world. And yet I feel that this particular place will bring me something and that with that, that I'm going to find on Sable Island will attempt to create some sort of significance towards that documentation by exposing it, by doing a book, by doing a film, by talking about it. 
And all that was in the context of wilderness and how awesome it is to encounter it the way that these particular wild horses are and how important it is for us to protect it. To answer your question, the end result was that I've done all those things, including a film. The film stirred up a lot of different conversations in Canada about why some people are allowed and some people are not, and what do we do with Sable Island? I, it even came up for sale. Somebody wanted to buy it, and uh, Sable Island stirred up all kinds of stirred up the pot of conversations. And then the Canadian government declared it to be a national park reserve. And uh, the film that we've done, Chasing Wild Horses, that I think you can still see it on Amazon Prime. Chasing Wild Horses was the instigator in that particular conversation. So with the declaration of a national park, of course, you have to allow some people to go and visit. Nevertheless, with the restriction that you cannot be within 60 feet of a horse or about 20 meters. And most people that visit Sable Island arrive, basically they visit the, the, the weather station and it's a kind of surrounding area. They are not allowed to go to walk on foot anywhere that they want or roam freely. So it's still fairly restrictive. You can say that you've gone to Sable Island and you are fortunate to actually touch Sable Island and be present to its beauty. But the restrictions are there in place to protect this wild horses and to protect wilderness at large on Sable Island, which is made of basically birds, seals, and wild horses. That makes a lot of sense, and it's actually right. It's great that you contributed to declaring this island a national reserve. I also wanted to ask you about some personal moments, uh, some beautiful moments you've had uh, with the horses over time, something you remember specifically. The most incredible moment for me was, so Sable Island, first of all, what makes it remarkable is that it sits on a conveyor belt of the Gulf Stream and the Arctic Stream. So one it's hot and one it's cold. So you have different weather on Sable Island than you have anywhere else. And you have these fog banks, especially in summertime or spring, when basically they cover the island. And they can basically move from one location to another. It's, if you're in New York City, there's a fog bank over Central Park, but the rest of Manhattan is sunny. And it just sits there. And sometimes it can sit there for days or for weeks. And it mostly sits over low-laying depressions in the island, over the water, or sometimes it moves into the highland of the sand dunes. And when this fog rolls in, you cannot see two meters in front of you. Just You have to just be. As I'm always equipped for the extremes of in weather, at that time, I put my North Face jacket, my, my waterproof pants, and my hat, and my gloves, and everything else, even though it was summertime. And I just lay down in the grass and I fell asleep, waiting for the fog to pass. And I remember waking up and having all these horses around me, like just looking at me, like, are you alive? Are you dead? What's going <laughs> And just having these gigantic heads just over me, just being curious. It was, it was a remarkable and extraordinary moment in the presence of these incredible beings that we call wild horses. That's when I was with them. And then the other moment that I'm going to comment on, because it certainly shook me and it gave me a sense of uh, smallness. The, the eastern part of the island basically is pointing towards Europe somehow. And the island is mostly covered in this gigantic sand dunes. But 
about four or five kilometers as you are reaching the eastern point, uh, the island, this spit of sand, extends itself into the ocean, maybe just four, five, six feet above the sea level, not more than that. There's no vegetation, and you can, the ocean in gigantic storms washes back and forth over it. Of course, when you, in my excitement to reach the end of it, I just kept on walking towards, looking at towards the point, and I never looked back. So when I reached the point, actually, this, I felt that I was in the middle of a boiling soup when the water starts to boil and it moves all around you. And you have these waves kind of pointing in different directions and converging into one other into bigger waves. And I'm turning around and now the rest of the island was covered in fog. And I'm sitting on this smallness of kind of what it felt like an island in the middle of this ocean. And I was thinking a single wave can actually shift direction and just take me off and I'm gone. Nobody will ever know that I've ever been there, that I exist. I'm just going to be gone in the ocean. And that's my time on this planet Earth. So it gave me a sense of eternity, smallness, significance, insignificance. So yeah, I certainly felt like a grain of sand being in that uh, time and place. And then with that realization, I kind of, I thought, okay, so what do you do with the time that you have left? I thought that we all have, in that, all these thoughts came to me in that moment. I thought we all have a termination date, right? And mm -hmm. well, that's certain. That was certainly, we get born and eventually we move on. We disappear, we pass on elevate, we dissipate, or we ascend. There's different ways to look at things. Um, I like to say that we continue. That's what I would like to think of me. At one point, we'll continue in a different realm, in a different form. So therefore, but with this time that we have here, what do we do? So my intention is very clear. Record as much beauty as possible and showcase it to as many people as possible. And by doing that, possibly influencing them to look at beauty and think of the world with kindness, love, affection, and protection. Absolutely. It's so beautiful. Your project on the Sable Island also led you to the establishment of I Am Wild platform, where you bring it together and art and conservation. Conservation, yes. yeah. Right. How does that work? Could you maybe give some successful examples of how art contributes to conservation? The most immediate successful perspective would be that, you know, we are having a collaboration with Hugo Boss right now, for example. They have some, some hoodies, some caps, some t-shirts, the imagery it's of my wild horses. It says, I am wild, uh, Hugo Boss or Hugo or Boss. And they are selling them in a hundred plus countries. And it does two things. It reminds people that I am wild. It's basically, it's a statement in itself. I am wild is a reminder that we come from wilderness. And even though we may have forgotten that. So even though we get dressed and we live in houses and we drive cars or not, we take buses and trains and so forth. In truth, we are wild. And because we're wild, we have forgotten that our intention and our purpose, our purpose when you are Part of the wilderness itself is to actually thrive in it and make sure that wilderness thrives along with you. 
And if you're going to destroy that wilderness that's around you indirectly, you're going to destroy your own self. So I am wild as a reminder that actually we not only belong in wilderness, we are wild in our own nature. And then the I am wild perhaps may stir up that realization that when you actually realize that you're part of wilderness itself, you may look at it with different eyes. And then you have to congratulate yourself uh, in the ways that we often do you know, when we take care of wilderness. In truth, we are taking care of our own selves. So therefore, this simple collaboration with Hugo Boss may encourage that thought process. It's helping us also uh, create our museum. So the I Am Wild, basically, for the past several years, I've been involved in this particular project in the creation of a museum, which is going to take this imagery in, in various form across a journey across America and, and in the world. And basically, Instead of them existing into a gallery, uh, being able to, to be showcased in various locations around the world for the same purpose and with the same reason. And then the ultimate goal of the I Am Wild Foundation and the I Am Wild Initiatives and initiative a single term is to create the Museum of the Horse in uh, two locations or perhaps more as permanent museums. And for this particular museums to actually showcase the horse, not just the wild horses. And why the horse? Because I feel that a horse in general is the unifier of all things, all races, all religions, and everything that exists around on our planet. We drive cars and we still proudly says that they say that they have 500 horsepower or 300 horsepower. We still, we use horses more often and less often, and we don't even think about them. So the Museum of the Horse, the IMWAL Museum of the Horse is an homage to the horse itself and to what the horse and the horses have done for us humans and will continue to do. And that's just one small aspect in which basically we can contribute to wilderness at large. There is a lot of talk about environmental crisis, but still not that much is done in practice. I think governments and world leaders do not really understand the scale of that problem. What can be done to change the general mentality? What mindset changes should happen to save our planet? To make a, a real change. Of course, you can do several things, but the one that I am wild is proposing is significantly different than several others. I'm going to stop with the with the with the with the bullseye, and then I'm going to come down from it. So the bullseye for me and for us at I Am Wild would be to have the I Am Wild Day through the United Nations. Okay, so on that I Am Wild Day is for the global economy, global GDP, on just quarter of that day, or maybe half a day, let's call it four hours, that global economy to be directed towards the planet itself. So we in the year, I, I think it has 8,765 hours, more or less. So eight, seven, six, five. So what the idea that came to me specifically and what I am all is proposing to reserve five hours, just five hours and five hours from the global GDP to be directed to the planet itself. And 
I don't think it's a lot to us. If you have 8,765 hours, you just take the last five hours, you direct it to that single thing that gives you everything. I think it's incredible that we have not done so, that we have not done that yet and so far. So I had some conversations with the guys at the UN, several different people from the survival of species, and they don't think that I'm crazy. They think it's doable and they think it's possible. And so therefore that would be one way of putting billions and billions of dollars every year towards foundations that are taking care of the planet Earth. So the IML Foundation is not just a place to give money to, but it's a place where uh, people come to grab ideas so they can utilize them in various ways for themselves, for other foundations. That's what IMWOL does, connects business and conservation and proposes other things that other people can actually grab and use on their own. I cannot reinvent the wheel nor be there long enough to do everything that I want to do or photograph all the other animals around the world. Other people have done that and other foundations are taking all kinds of initiatives. So the idea is, what is it that they're lacking? They're lacking money. How do you support them in various ways? I think that the global economy should support them, period. And if they have a problem with that, the planet Earth is giving you water, oxygen, food, and pretty much everything else, including all the beauty around you. Basically, it gives you home support in so many different ways. So I don't think that Anybody's going to have a problem to allocate five hours from this global GDP to the planet itself. To me, that's bullseye, and that's the single thing that can actually transform everything about how we operate and how we do things. And I feel that we live in that time in which the population, everybody, is more willing to think of our planet as our home planet and for us to realize very much just like Buckminster Fuller has said that we're astronauts actually on our own planet earth and we which is basically our own spaceship traveling through space I think at 27,000 miles per second and we have forgotten that because we have never witnessed the planet from space most of the astronauts when they have witnessed Earth from space, they have been physically transformed and they have realized the uniqueness of this incredible place that we call Earth and the importance for it to actually be uh, loved and cared for. We are visitors here, so I think that in the short time that we have left, maybe we should allocate a couple of hours to the home planet Earth. It's a remarkable initiative. I hope you you could proceed with it and we'll certainly join in. I feel it's going to take place. It's just a question of, will it take place earlier rather than later? And when it does, would we have moved too far ahead where we don't need five hours, but we need 50 hours of the global GDP to possibly correct what we have done so far. That's the only question. Some things will go in one direction. Sable Island may disappear or may not. We do not know. The sea level is certainly going to move up by a meter without a doubt. These are basically the findings that 
I'm a very curious person. I read pretty much on most days and I'm curious to know what's going to happen with Antarctica and Greenland and what's going to happen with where I am. I live in Old Greenwich in Connecticut. I swim every day. I was in the ocean two hours ago for an hour. I have a wetsuit and I don't have to travel to Antarctica to see the changes. I can tell you one thing that in the past four years, the high tide here at Tides Point goes into the parking lot. So therefore... There are changes that I can witness on my own without reading anything. And that's where we're going towards. So the question is, how do we curb some of those things? Some we can and some we cannot. With money, we will be able to possibly accelerate what needs to be done. And that's why the 100 trillion GDP has to be addressed and implemented into the, this global economy that has to be implemented into conservation itself is not, is no longer about whether the Apple shares go up or down where Google or whatever other investment stocks that people may have may go up and down. It's a question that I feel that we're at that stage in which planetary conservation is a global concern and therefore it should be a global togetherness that everybody can actually participate in too. Yeah. I think we all have to think about it. And it's remarkable that there are people like you who feel it personally. For many people, the environmental issue is something that is not related to them. We uh, all feel it. And I feel that the multiplication of the ones that feel it is there every single day. It's just a question at what time and how long will it take for this feeling of a necessity to actually become action. Exactly. You mentioned this connectedness of humanity and nature and our planet Earth. That is actually the concept behind Buddhism. Everything is connected to everything and we are part of a bigger world. Here I would like to ask you about your encounter with the Dalai Lama. I know you had a project photographing him. How did it come about and how has it influenced you? Some years ago, I was part of a group project in the city of Montreal in Canada with a gigantic exhibition on McGill College. I don't know if you've ever been to Montreal. It's in front of you, the university. And I was participating, just documenting the city of Montreal, my vision of it, and along with many other people. And then the city of Montreal invited me to, to have a solo show. They gave me like four city blocks and it was an awesome type of a... Different people made different proposals and I made a proposal that the initiative should be titled Here Is Now. And the initiative is based on the beauty of the world and what other people have done, including His Holiness the Dalai Lama, from a because he, he won the Nobel Prize for Peace. And uh, I proposed that I should go and we should definitely have a photograph of His Holiness in this particular show. And they asked me, have you ever met him or photographed him? I said, no, but he's just a call away, just like everyone else. And uh, they did not really believe it, but I said, I'll, I said, I'm going to, I'm going to photograph him without a doubt. And I had to fly to New York, met at the Tibetan house, some leaders, some people flew to Dharamsala, where he is now, McLeod Ganj, where the, his residence is, the government in exile. And on that particular day was Losar, which is a new year. He chose not to actually show up. 
and imagine the disappointment, my disappointment that I was not able to photograph him, number one, but in the disappointment of all the other reporters that came from all over, obviously the new year is significant. Many people gathered from all over the world and for some political reasons and security reasons, he was advised that he, he, he should just should not show up, but that did not dampen my enthusiasm. Of course, I ended up photographing a lot of, a lot of uh, what I call my fellow monks. I feel different things for different religions, and I don't consider myself to be one or another. I embrace pretty much everybody, and I feel that uh, different religions have different qualities attached to them. If everybody can pick just the qualities that exist in every single religion, I think that's what maybe what Buddhism is about. <laughs> Nevertheless, it has taken me some time and then eventually I was able to actually be with him alone, one by one, photograph him, not just on one occasion, but I photographed him on many occasions over many different places in Toronto and New York and a few other places where we've traveled, listening to be in his presence at four o'clock in the morning and or in the afternoon or to just have an exchange with him with nobody else in sight. And I remembered what you tell him on one of the occasions. I was thinking, I said, what do I tell him? You only have sometimes 30 seconds or two minutes to be with him. Other people want to say hello. So I simply told him that he is the most incredible monk that I have ever met. And I met a lot of monks in my life. And he laughed for those next two minutes. And then we blessed one another and that was it. Sometimes words are not needed to experience the same thing. It's been said that if you feel something in front of someone, chances are that person feels the same way in front of you. And I think that in some occasions, that's what has happened in his presence. And within that time that exists between us, some of those photographs have been taken and some of those moments were experienced. And my intention with His Holiness, just like with everyone else, was to bring my finds to a larger audience and to let go of what was. Not to have anything attached to it. I think that sometimes is key to allowing things to be as they are and then to be ready for what is next. Being with him, without a doubt, is certainly remarkable in so many different ways. And one of my friends actually carried his photograph. He is a, an artist and he's a photographer and he climbed his holiness's picture uh, in his vest while climbing all the top peaks of the world. And he had his own story as he was in on, on the top of Himalayas and he pulled his photograph to pay homage to, he felt that His Holiness had brought him luck and safety in all these gigantic escalations around the world. A gust of wind happened and then so His Holiness's picture flew into China and uh, that's where it is now. <laughs> Incredible. So, it, this are, of course, you can make political statements or non-political statements. We know what happened and we know why it has happened and we know why things happen. The reasons are obvious and they are right there in everybody's face. And uh, uh, non-political statements are photographic and they are non-political for that reason alone. That I would like to think that I'm a good photographer and I can record those findings for all the other people that cannot be in those places that I find comfort. Therefore, I bring my finds to them and I let them decide what needs to be done next. I'm lucky to see these photographs. <laughs> you are uh, Russian, obviously. What I have not ever talked about, and I don't often talk about it, when Gorbachev came to Montreal, he met Trudeau, 
And so it happened that I was in their presence photographing them while he was declaring the fall of the, uh, what was going to be next in the fall of the Berlin Wall. And it was a private meeting and how I got there, that's a different story. But I have some incredible photographs of Gorbachev and the intensity of the moment and the way he was holding his hands underneath the table while talking to Trudeau. It was just the three of us in that room. I guess the fortune favors the brave. <laughs> <laughs> so what Something was your impression like of Gorbachev? How did you feel? Extraordinary. Trudeau did not like that I was there. I photographed Trudeau and uh, his kids in various ways, but he did not like it. He actually hated it, which is funny because, and the reason that he did not like it is because at that time I had this motorized camera that would make gigantic noises. And of course, it was such an intimate moment. And instead of me just taking a picture, I chose to stay there longer than I was welcomed. And uh, Gorbachev was totally immersed into the conversation with Trudeau, and Trudeau was very much immersed in the, in, in the noise that my motor drive was making. <laughs> I met a lot of different people, I photographed many of them, and sometimes I don't show any of those photographs. I find just like I don't show a lot of photographs of the wild horses, or sometimes I choose not to photograph Moments. Some moments are just gifts and you have to recognize them as such. Have um, a great profession that allows you to see so many things, people, places. It's a gift. <laughs> yes, I recommend it. I, to those people that are aspiring to be photographers from a photographer perspective, you have to make sure that you love it. And you can only love it if you are very good at it. And what I, the definition of be being very good at it is knowing pretty much everything that there is to know about it. Technically, number one, I encourage everybody to go and study photography, go to school actually, or don't go to school, but learn everything about it. Become a, an apprentice to a great photographer if you can, or ask as many questions to another photographer. What does it mean? Why this and why that? And then when you do that, then you can actually step into the other realm of now that I know how to dance. Then if you misstep, it doesn't matter. Fred Astaire said the, the great dancer, American dancer, said that, you know, you can misstep as many times as you want for as long as you know the steps. Once technically you become, let's say, somehow knowledgeable in terms of what it is on how a photograph mechanically, how what it means to take a picture, they can, they, then you can actually explore the possibilities of what you can do with that photograph, what lenses, what cameras, what film, what developer, what printing. I mean, there's so many different steps, but mostly why you are taking that particular photograph and what is the intention of you photographing that single thing that's in front of you. So once you define intention, then I feel that then that object of desire opens us up, opens itself to you and to your intention. And sometimes you can only record it if you, from a technical perspective, you know what you're doing. And that is beyond just taking snapshots of things, but actually technically learning on what it means to take a photograph. Of course, at an early stage, what I, all that I have said is too complicated. And I have a program, it's called How to Crack an Egg Through Photography. And what I do with it, I take my iPhone or whatever phone it will be. You plug it into a projector and I take anything. I can take a cup on my desk and I can take a picture of it and I can transform it in a different way. And I can make art of it. And somebody say, I like it, I'm going to buy it. Of course, not the purpose is not for somebody to buy it. 
but you can transform it that thing in front of you into an art piece that somebody's happy to live with on the wall. And for other people to say, what is it? And for you to say, just a cup of coffee that I photographed in a unique way. I usually go to schools and I encourage people. I show them what I, how I can take a pencil or a, an egg or anything, just mundane things, how I can photograph them and how I can observe that object in different angles and under different conditions. Then they understand and they get it very fast of what I'm doing in those 10, 15 minutes. Then 15 minutes they spend experimenting themselves, usually on their iPads. And then we spend 15 minutes plugging in to my projector and I show what everybody else is doing. And on many occasions, their photographs are better than mine, of course. They are so much brighter than I can ever be. They see the world and do with different eyes. And so I encourage everybody to observe the world, to take as many pictures as possible, to share them with the rest of the world. And at one point when the timing is right, to learn a bit about technique so they can become better photographers. That's a brilliant piece of advice. Thank you for sharing. And have fun with it. Have fun and have fun. Don't take yourself too seriously. And don't worry so much if you don't get it on your first trial. I can spend, I was away in, a, it doesn't matter what island, but I just came back and I was in this pool, a beautiful pool with trees all around, palm trees, and a very small feather landed in the pool as I was there. So I spent the next three hours on my iPhone, photographing this single feather. And my friends that were looking at me, they simply said, we have never seen anything like it. And they, and I said, what? I said, you spent three hours photographing that small pool, a small feather in the pool that became insignificant. I must have taken a thousand pictures. Did I, did I get what I wanted in the actual intention without a doubt? But it took me three hours to actually get there. That's what art is about. It's about looking at things closely for a long time and trying to discern something really unique about this thing and this particular moment. And that is the purpose of conservation also. Exactly the way that you've described Howard, the great philosopher, described it. Pretty much in the same words, he used different words, but, but he said, thus, the task is not so much to see what no one else has seen, but to think that which no one else has thought about those that things that everyone sees. I know that it's a many words in, in one long phrase, but the task is very simple. You can look at something. And our task is to think ab about it in a different way and to think about it in a way that becomes a positive statement into the future and to showcase it to others in that new way that was discovered by you alone. So if we can do that, then I think that we can create a better world for us all. That's what I'm thinking. That is our task to think of everything in a new way and a better way than we have thought of so far. That's so true. And my last question is the one I ask all my guests. This podcast is titled uh, Being Modern, Being Human. Being modern and being human, what does it mean to you? I think it's a necessity. I think that we have to be modern 
in order to be human. And we have to take advantage of our mo modernity or being modern and our modern or many modern ways really of thinking of being of, and I feel that I think we have to be modern in our actions towards our planet. And when we realize that we're being human also, then I feel that our actions can only be positive towards wilderness, towards planets, and towards other humans that are just as wild as we are. These are beautiful words. Thank you very much for being my guest. Delighted. <laughs> Thank you for listening. A new episode of Being Modern, Being Human will come out in two weeks, as usual. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave a rating or review on one of your favorite platforms. That will help others discover the podcast. In the meantime, take care and have a good time.